This man walks over to my car and he taps me on the chest and he says, one day you're gonna be a leader. And I'm conflicted because what he's speaking over my life does not match my environment. While there are people who are unhoused due to drug addiction, that's not the leading cause of homelessness in this country. The leading cause of homelessness in this country is actually job loss. We're starting to see a rise in people who are becoming unhoused that have never been unhoused before. If there's no increase in income and you have to pay out more than you're taking in, that creates a gap which puts you in a place to be unhoused. I was in a car accident. I had to be in a hospital for a month. I had to learn how to walk again. If I did not have good insurance, I would be homeless myself. And so you got to factor in all of the circumstances that surrounds this subject and not just see it through a singular lens. And I got to ask you, man, if the music never worked out, if you never won an award and you were to follow in the footsteps of your father and you found yourself on the West Coast unhoused, having cars drive by you, what would be on your song? This is the deep end with Lecrae. Hey, what's going on, y'all? Uh, I have the distinct, distinguished, all the Ds. I have the honor and privilege of being here with, with an incredible individual. Now, a lot of you know him from some of the headlines that he's made throughout the years, but you don't know how I know him. So let me just give you a quick backstory on my connection. If you know about me, you know my grandmother was just an incredible individual, she's still alive, but she she had us feeding people in Southern San, in Southeast San Diego on the streets, feeding people all the way in Tijuana who were displaced, who didn't have homes. So I grew up kind of seeing her flesh this out. And it, it always, you know, burdened me and, and burned something in my brain to like want to care for the disenfranchised people in society. Fast forward, I'm in Atlanta, I want to you know, kind of be a part of something along these lines. And I run across uh, this incredible organization called Love Beyond Walls, led by uh, our distinguished guest today, Dr. Terrence Lester. Now, the crazy part about it is, is, uh, you know, I'm just very ignorant, naive, and just like, yeah, let's go feed the homeless people. And I don't know what I'm doing. I just know I want to help people like my grandma was helping people. But as I'm out there, uh, I realize that I have a lot of biases. You know, I realize that I believe that people put themselves in a situation. If a lot of people don't know, my father is currently, you know, well, he may be government housed right now because he got a social security, but he's been homeless for the, the, the majority of his adult life. So I have perspectives and biases. That being said, I connected with with Terrence here and he enlightened me and I hope y'all get the same kind of enlightenment. I was so ignorant y'all and my perspective has been completely transformed. He's single-handedly been a part of that and so much so that when COVID hit and we can get into that as well, I was like, what do we do? I didn't know who to talk to, but I just realized people were on the street struggling. I hit Terrence and he was like, bro, I already got a plan. I already, this is what I want to do. People need to sanitize. They're scared they're going to die. And I was like, bro, whatever I got to do to get involved, I'm involved. This man got me in the mix of something that I had no idea was going to then become a global movement. And uh, it still is moving. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, my man. You know, Terrence, Dr. Terrence Lester, yeah. welcome, bro. Thank welcome. you so much for having me, man. Yeah. Um, really excited, humbled, and grateful to uh, have this discussion. Yeah. One of which I think isn't had enough. Bro. Yeah. Listen, so I know you, you yeah. know what I mean? But the world, the world knows you from a lot of things, right? So I, I want to take people back. The world may know you from seeing you literally walk. Uh, across the country to <laughs> yeah. gain awareness for homeless. I mean, walk, y'all. He walked. The world may know you from the the hand-washing stations, right? Yeah. Love Sing Sing campaign from COVID. You were all over the news, CNN everywhere. But who is Terrence? Like, where did you come from? What's your story? Yeah. How did you get to where you are, man? Yeah. Man, I would honestly uh, describe myself as just a, a person that lives from the heart. I love my family, uh, first and foremost. Yeah. I love God. My children 
uh, mean the world to me and my wife means the world to me. And, you know, I'm originally from Atlanta. That's rare. Like, like I literally grew up on the streets of Atlanta, southwest Atlanta, not like um, outskirts and all oh, that oh, so stuff. We don't do the, it's, it's not, not Atlanta. It's not Atlanta. <laughs> like, I, I'm literally from Atlanta. Went okay. to high school in Atlanta. But I, I think one of the most important life-changing things that happened for me is when I was a teenager, bro, like I, I remember growing up in an environment that uh, wasn't really, it wasn't peaceful. Mm -hmm. And I felt that it was safer to be outside than it was to be in a house, yeah. right? And so yeah. I experienced homelessness as a teenager. As a matter of fact, I, I remember one night specifically, I had run away from home. Mm -hmm. I was standing at a gas station and I was begging for change. Mm. Uh, back then, you know, you had pay phones or whatever. So like I was trying to gather change so I could use the pay phone. Mm. And I remember people walking in and out. They were like looking at me crazy. And this one man walks up to me. It was late at night. He says, young man, this is a school night. Uh, what on earth are you doing out here like this late? And I was like, sir, I just need to use the change. In the back of my mind, I wanted to reach out to my friend. His name was Eric because mm -hmm. I knew his father was the type of man that like sat around the t dinner table with his kids and like they had a good chemistry. So yeah. this guy throws two quarters at me. I'll never forget it. I caught one with my right hand, the other falls on the ground. Like I had all this shame and I picked Sheesh. up this uh, quarter and I walk up to the payphone and I, I call my friend E. I say, E, he picks up. I was like, E, do you think your family would allow me to come over? Cause I, I think I'm gonna sleep in the park again tonight. And, um, he puts down the phone, he goes, he asks his parents, he comes back to the phone, he says, man, come on over, my family loves you. Mm. Um, I, I rode over to their house, gas hand near an E, everything mm -hmm. I own possess in the trunk of my car. And um, this man, Mr. Moore, walks over to my car and he taps me on the chest and he says, he says, one day you're going to be a leader. And I'm conflicted. Mm -hmm. I'm conflicted because what he's speaking over over my life mm -hmm. does not match my environment. Mm. Mm -hmm. That moment of pausing to see my humanity and my worth mm -hmm. and taking the time to affirm my dignity, man, it was life-changing to me. He was the guy that I asked, should I marry her? Oh, wow. Should I put myself through college? Yeah. Should I try to overcome the odds that were stacked that are stacked against me? And he was right there. He became a mentor, man. And um, Mr. Moore's story in my life is really the groundswell of where I started to develop my passion because he told me one day I would be using my story and the pain for something more purposeful. Yo, that's okay. So you said a lot in a, yeah. in, in a short amount of time. And that's crazy because you, you really kind of broke a couple barriers for a lot of people, even with your origin story. So I can relate to a certain degree in terms of like trauma in the house, mm -hmm. you know, which created me I, I became a runaway as well right mm. but you know my type of running away was like you know I, i'm gonna I'm go stay at the homie's house real quick i was like you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm gonna go just sleep on the park bench yeah, 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 uh, yeah. but yeah. but but that is something i don't think a lot of people take into consideration is family trauma so i remember one night and and you know lord my mom you know i'll be putting her business in the street but she's an open book like me but i remember one night my mom and uh you know, her husband at the time got into a fight. Um, both of them got arrested, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was fortunate to have family members who could come scoop me up. But I can imagine the kid who doesn't have that direct connection and direct family who's dealing with that trauma, like just going out on the street. And yeah. is that that's a real situation, right? Is that yeah? What I mean, it's it's real. Like, I mean. People normally associate homelessness with just adults mm -hmm. or f a few people that they see on the street corner. Mm. Uh, but homelessness itself is a it's a global issue. So like when I talk about this conversation, it involves, you know, all the people in the world who are unhoused and have no home. Yeah. And majority of the people who are unhoused are youth. Mm -hmm. You got to think about the number of kids who didn't choose to be, you know, unhoused, mm -hmm. but they're with their parents or with their guardians or with uh, people who are staying in uh, unique situations. Mm -hmm. uh, statistics show that the fastest growing population of people experiencing homelessness are youth, 
under the age of nine. That's crazy. And then you have another uh, population that is fastly growing, which are teenagers yeah. who are being indirectly impacted by trauma. So you think about generational trauma, no access to uh, stable family support, mm -hmm. uh, no connections because you're underage and mm -hmm. you're not able. So like there's a, a population of kids right now that are living on the streets that would be considered missing in the instant. Yeah. In the sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's real. Uh, and we got to deal with the trauma because I don't think that is something that is often connected to uh, this this term homelessness. So. I know for me, and I've had, you know, because I've lived in certain environments, I felt like an expert, you know, because my father was homeless, I felt like an expert. He was without a house. I'm like, oh, well, I, I know this world and I know the issue. Yeah. Because specifically now, again, I don't know all the trauma my dad experienced and everything. I don't know his whole childhood. But what I do know is that in order to deal with trauma, you know, he became addicted to drugs. Hmm. And so my my vantage point was everybody who's on the streets has a drug problem. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is just drugs. You know mm. what I'm saying? Oh, they, he, he, he tweaking, he, you know, dealing with his issues. And I think that in a sense could make me callous. I don't know about other people, but I, I could, I imagine a lot of people are like, look the other way because they're like, man, just, you know, you on drugs. Or we hear people have the conversations all the time who say, I don't know why anybody gives them money. All they're going to do is smoke it up. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, is that true? Is that, you know, what what do you say to that mindset? Because, you you know, I've had to learn. I'm just, I'm speaking for everybody else out yeah. there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what does that, what where does that come from? How do we address that? What's, what's the mindset people should have when it comes to that? Yeah, I think about a number of things. Most people who have been educated around the subject of homelessness, it's been embedded education. Mm. Um, so like mm. when you think about uh, homelessness itself, you have a lot of social framing around that. And mm -hmm. it, a lot of things drive that uh, social and political rhetoric, uh, ordinances and laws that criminalize, mm. uh, things that you've heard from commentators on television, how people who are experiencing homelessness are depicted in film mm -mm. Uh, because imagery drives some of this social framing. Mm -hmm. So by the time you see someone who is standing on a corner and you've been fed all of this second and third and fourth hand information, yeah. by the time you see someone, you're looking through a lens that has been created for you. Sheesh. And the lens that has been created for you only exists within a short time frame. So like sometimes we uh, I've heard people reduce a person's existence down to a 30 second window mm -hmm. from the time that they saw them at a stoplight mm. and they glance over, lock their doors to the time they drive off. Uh, homelessness is much more robust, much more complex, much much more heavy mm -hmm. uh, than we allow ourselves to imagine or even think about. Mm -hmm. And so while there are people who are unhoused due to drug addiction, that's not the leading cause of homelessness in this country. All right. Talk the, to us. The leading cause of homelessness in this country is actually job loss. Oh. And now... Uh, we are headed into, in my scholarly opinion, what I would consider the third mass homelessness era. There are two mass homelessness er eras that are uh, recognized by political and social scientists. First, you have the mass era around the Great Depression, right? Yeah. And you see a lot of poverty emerging. And then you have the second mass era, which is the contemporary area era that we're living in now, yeah. uh, which only starts within the last 50 years where homelessness itself in this era becomes criminalized, right? After deinstitutionalization, the closing down of mental health facilities and all of these things. And then right now we find ourselves heading into another mass homelessness era, which would be the era of unaffordability. We're starting to see a rise in people who are becoming unhoused that have never been unhoused before. Mm. These are not chronically unhoused people. These are people who have families who can no longer afford to stay in the neighborhoods that they're staying in. Yeah. You know, these are families who are living out of cars. I, I remember uh, encountering a family not too long ago that said their 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 rent or their mortgage doubled. 
Yeah. It went from 1700 to 3400 and there's no increase in income. So like if there's no increase in income and you have to pay out more than you're taking in, that, that, that creates a gap, which puts you in a place to be unhoused. Yeah. There are people who had uh, mental challenges arise after the death of a loved one. You have grief, you have uh, physical inabilities, right? Mm. Uh, I just went through a tragedy myself. When I was in a car accident, I had to be in a hospital for a month, I had to learn how to walk again. If I did not have good insurance, I would be homeless myself. And so you gotta factor in all of the circumstances that um, surrounds this subject and not just see it through a singular lens yeah. because homelessness itself is not monolithic. So <clears throat> playing devil's advocate. Yeah. Okay. Because I think that a lot of folks can say, Oh, that's noble. That what you doing. That's noble. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, good for you. And you know, from now on, I'm a, you know, keep a granola bar in my car. You yeah. know what I'm saying? But man, devil's advocate. We all, got the same 24 hours in a day yeah you know i can i can find an online job like anybody else can i can uh you know uh go out there and go to ups ups is hiring you know why can't this man get off the street yeah what what, what do you say to that yeah bro i was invited to give a talk at <clears throat> i feel emotions right now prominent environment a lot of CEOs in the city, and uh, I was speaking to this 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 audience filled with privilege, right? Mm. Right before I go up, like something just over overcomes me because I'm in this room that I know, had it not been for the grace of God, I would be in, right? And so, tears welling up in my eyes, I go up and I give this talk, and standing ovation. But mm. within the talk, I'm telling these people, right? that I'm talking to less than 10 miles away from this environment. I used to sleep in a park. Sheesh. It's a long journey to walk hmm. where you have people overlook you when you're a teenager and label you because they don't understand your social context. Hmm. It's a long journey to walk, not to have an example to go to college, graduate and try to think about what you're going to become and what you want to do with your life. It's a long journey to walk where you don't have any Christian examples of what it means to literally trust God and live by faith to overcome your hardships. It's mm. a long journey to walk, to start an organization from absolutely nothing uh, out of my garage with the faith uh, joined by my wife. It's a long journey to walk, uh, to have to overcome some of the, the stereotypes and the inner narratives that's swirling around in your head because of trauma. It's a long journey to walk. So like when people say you could just work really hard, that's not true for everyone. Hmm. I was fortunate, but you know what I'm doing with my, my privilege? I'm serving. Hmm. You want to see where I am? I'm not just trying to be in a room with people who have accessibility. I'm trying to be close to those who have no accessibility so I can remind them just like somebody reminded me when I didn't have anywhere or anyone to look to that I was worthy. Mm. And it's through that transformation comes. Mm -hmm. You never know how your, your story, your testimony, your words of encouragement might help somebody become all that they were meant to become, mm. you know, because people don't become what you want them to become. They become what you encourage them to become. And I think that is the thing that we need to consider. It's a long journey. Woo. You said a lot. Okay. Like one of the things I love what you said there is I think people don't understand the internal obstacles. Like that's one of the like. You so, know how much work I had to do. Yeah. You you heard of Aces test, adverse childhood experiences test. Uh -uh. It's ten questions. They ask you stuff like, Have you ever had a parent incarcerated? Have you ever grew up in poverty? Did you have access? You know all of these questions. I scored ten out of ten. To all of those traumatic, Tra all those traumatic circumstances. Mm. And so I was in conversation with a, a clinician one time. And they. And the clinician said, you have to, you start at a negative 10. 
If this is the playing field, you're starting at a negative 10 emotionally. Mm. And you have to climb out and and work and do some inner work and have access and have access to people who uh, support systems and all this thing to get to a level playing field emotionally just so you can have the courage to pursue what you have the potential to So what it sounds like, what, what you're saying is a lot of people don't recognize even the privilege to not have to overcome those internal emotional dialogues. A lot of people don't have to wrestle with the reality that they are less than. You know, I, I hear a lot about the 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 recidivism rate of incarcerated individuals. Yeah. And when I go to prisons, a, a lot of the conversation is, well, well, who else would I be? Matter of fact, I remember a story of two individuals, mm. two kids who grew up with the same, you know, mom and dad, their dad became a career criminal and ended up going to prison. One of the sons, and they're only a year apart, one of the sons ends up following his dad's footsteps. The other son ends up a scholar. Mm. And when they asked those boys, those men, hey, what was the difference? They asked the career criminal, they said, hey, why why do you think you ended up going down this path? He said, because this is what my dad did. Mm. And then they asked the, the one who became a scholar, they said, why did you go down this path? He says, because I watched what my dad did. Mm. And it, it, the difference was one of them had to overcome those internal dialogues and narratives that said all you can be is what you've seen to become something different. And what I hear you saying is that people don't even have those models mm. to become something different. People don't even have those pictures in their own minds. You know, you said you scored a 10 out of 10. Like, yeah. talk to us about one of those. So, so like- <laughs> So that's one aspect. Yeah. Okay, so you think about the emotional aspect, and then you think about the burden and the heaviness of poverty, right? Okay. So- A lot um, of people don't know that. Yeah, so- Talk about that, yeah. Joe Blue, in his book, uh, The Visible Poor, argues that we shouldn't even be separating the the term homelessness from the word poverty, Mm. because homelessness itself is a, it's like a symptom of this greater- uh, evil, which Martin Luther King is talking about, one of the triple evils. Yeah. Um, when I say poverty or impoverishment, so imagine all the emotional weight that you're carrying. Yeah. And you're working a job that's not on public transportation line, and your car breaks down. Mm-hmm. 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 You get fired from an hourly job because you don't have any transportation. That's facts. Okay. Um, you you think about the how that intersects with depression or mm. emotional weight, how that intersects with living in a food desert and not mm. having access to healthier foods, how that intersects with your spirituality or your social network, right? Yeah. What do you do when you're isolated? Yeah. And then you walk down the street and you have someone look at you and look down on you and they don't even know your story. Woof. You know how many rooms I've walked in and people have overlooked me and didn't even know who I was, mistreated me. So when I sit across the table or like when I'm working with someone who is unhoused and they say, man, it hurts my soul really bad because I was put out of a church parking lot for asking to use the restroom. Mm. When I was doing my research in the state of Tennessee, churches were working with police departments to arrest people who are unhoused because Tennessee became the first state in the United States of America to felonize sleeping outside. But when I was doing my research in my PhD program, I figured out that it was being driven by social and political rhetoric and there were more people who were unhoused than beds available. Wow. So when you think about public sanitation, public sanitation is also connected to how we talk about things. Yeah. Often say this time and time again, you know, if I was carless, you wouldn't call me carless. If I didn't have a car, if I was shoeless, you wouldn't call me shoeless. Homelessness is one of the the only uh, issues where you can be labeled for something you don't have and then punished for trying to survive it. You. So we identify people based off the fact that they don't have a house or a place to lay their head. Now you're identified. If we're only using an address to determine how worthy a person is, that's a shallow person. And a lot of us are shallow, bro. Like I and again, I don't I don't wanna so for anybody 
you know, who's hearing this, I don't want to pick on people. No, I'm not. And I'm not saying you are. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm saying, but they, but we do need this challenge because I was them. Mm-hmm. I was all of these folks who did not have proper perspective. One day that blew my mind. I'll never forget this. We came to Wheat Street. Oh yeah, Baptist. Yeah, and this is back in the day, and I and I was. You know, we were sent out to go feed people on the streets, and I'm feeling like an expert. You know, I know yeah. this. Uh, yeah, take this plate. You know what I mean? A couple things happened. One, I want you to address later. Yeah, yeah. The, the first thing I want you to address later is this. I'm going to tell you what happened, and then we'll talk about it later. I offered a meal to somebody, and they said, what's in it? And then they looked in it, and then it was like, nah, I'm cool. Mm. I was like, how dare this person turn down this meal? We'll address that later, okay? Now, the second thing that happened to me was this, bro. I just ran into this guy, and I said, said, man, what's your story? And he was like, man, I got arrested because, you know, I was trying to get some money. And then once I got out of jail, I didn't have nobody, nowhere to go. And I said, you didn't have, like, where where your family at? He said, man, this what... I was adopted mm. and I was put in the foster system. Mm. And so I never knew my parents or my family. And then when I aged out of the foster system, I was on my own. Mm. And then from there, I couldn't f- find steady work. So I tried to come up really quick. I did some criminal. I got locked up. Now I got this felony on me. I can't get a job. And I and I don't have any family. And I, it blew my mind because I was thinking to myself, I don't know what that feels like to not have a family or a friend to call. Thanks. To put like so, literally, he's just at the whim of the city. Yeah. Like, if you know yeah. what stood out to me, bro, that phrase "I'm on my own." Mm. We got to pause and sit with that because the truth of the matter, we all want to be seen in some way, seen in our family, seen in our community, seen in our work, seen in our seen in our relationships. And when I talk about seen, mm-hmm. I'm talking about a concept of home that supersedes four walls and a roof because home itself is more than four walls and a roof. Home is about a place and a space where you feel accepted, where you feel seen and where you feel like you belong. Wow. Wow. And when you consider that, right, uh, homelessness, most definitions only uh, talk about the lack of a physical address. But when I speak of home, I'm talking about creating belonging and space where people can be included, right? Mm. And so when I hear that I'm on my own, many of your listeners know what it feels like to be on your own. Mm. Many of you have felt on your own at your job, in your families, even in the, your church context or your church community, um, in your relationships. Yeah. You know, on your own, when you really lean into the emotions around that, yeah, it's heavy. And to be seen is to be valued in a way where you feel like you're included. Now, one of the things, and I'm going to come back to the food piece, but I, I want to camp out on something you said because it, it, it struck a nerve for me, mm. is you said home is a place where you feel accepted, you feel seen, and you belong. And yeah. then you said prior to that, that churches were working with the police yeah. to keep people from being apart. Yeah, that broke my heart. Church... In the origin of it, the definition is is like a body, is a place we should be a part of this. Yeah. Cause I've I've experienced some extreme church hurt. I've experienced disappointment yeah. from my, you know, my 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 brother and sister. What have you seen? Like where where's some areas where you feel like, man, the the church is like needs to be challenged in this particular area? Yeah. So last year, January, I went over to Tennessee. I lived on the streets and I shot a documentary film for my dissertation. It's called Homesick. Yeah. Um, One of the reasons I chose to do that was because when I was researching this public policy, I found out that there wasn't enough voices of those who the policy was actually harming. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to understand how is public policy actually harming the sense of self-worth of individuals? How is it excluding them from what ML King describes as the beloved community? Mm-hmm. But also, do, do the unhoused community, does the unhoused community actually have a critical analysis 
of the public policy. Yeah. And so one of the ways I can insert their voices in the political process in research, I'm not just talking about like policy for left and right. I'm talking about actual scholarship. Mm-hmm. I would ask, and I remember I was in Memphis, less than a mile away from where uh, ML King was assassinated. And we were standing in the church parking lot. And this guy comes out of the door shooing people away. Like well, shoe, like get like out of shoe, here. Like shoe, like shoe. There were no cars in the parking lot. This community was saying to me on film. Like you they weren't people. Film, <laughs> yeah, like they weren't people that, you know, we hate the fact that we have to get off of this particular parking lot because when we go on other private property, we can be arrested and be given a felony. And this one guy I was interviewing said, isn't the church supposed to be safe? That's crazy. And then he follows up and says, didn't Jesus sleep outside? That's right. That's right. So and when you ask me that, man, like I've seen some instances where churches have, you know, opened up their churches to be like a day shelter giving people access to be able to come in and use the restroom, access technology. Um, sometimes have, on the West Coast, opened up their church parking lots and created uh, safe havens for people to sleep, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and wouldn't be where they can't be, you know, harassed by law enforcement and things. Yeah. I've seen churches work with uh, community members like we have. We've partnered with churches where we've actually taught empathy empathetic approaches to dealing and standing with this population and so it's possible we just don't see enough of it it makes me wonder like who who is this jesus that these folks are are following because from my vantage point i mean i would like to say i'm looking at it from god's vantage point i see a god i see a jesus who number one is born in poverty yeah so he's born in poverty to a teenage mother, minority, minority, yeah. born in poverty, teenage under oppression, under oppression, yeah, has to like comes up, literally was displaced, displaced. Remember, and he had to move. Had to move, yeah. right? They couldn't find a place to stay at the end. He was turned away, and that's why he says, "When you're dealing with the poor, you're dealing with the incarcerated. You're dealing with me." Yeah, and it's so funny because I see a Jesus who literally spent time hanging around the disenfranchised people. Mm. Like, how many people, how many sex workers do we go find ourselves kicking it with? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm. trying to do some redemptive work. How many people who are currently unhoused do we find ourselves spending time with trying to really, you know, change the narrative? Mm. Everybody's going to get out on Christmas Eve and Thanksgiving and go serve a plate. Mm. But who's literally saying, man, I really want to follow in the footsteps of the God I say I love, and be in proximity with people who are unlike me, in proximity to people who don't have what I have. Like Jesus literally came from heaven where he had everything and displaced himself, put himself similar to you mm. in a position where he had access to none of those things. He limited himself, mm. as Hebrew says, he limited himself to be amongst the weak, the broken, the, the people who were impoverished. In order to, and it was associated with them. Like, regardless, you got the Pharisees mm. and the Sadducees all kicking it, you know, trying to vie for political placement or climb the ladder. And here he is rolling with, I mean, like, when you're out healing the sick, mm. when you're out, like, those are the people who are in, in his time who would have been unhoused because they just land mm. in front of the city gates looking yeah. for money, so on and so forth. I say all that to say, to me, I don't know the God that these people are following. I don't know what version of the Bible folks are reading if they're not trying to understand and connect themselves with folks who are disenfranchised. And how do you not see them as image bearers? How do you just see them as people who just, you know what I'm saying, like are just a drag on society? I want to talk about talk about another experience and and it can tie into, you know, the piece with the food. But another experience that I had where, man, it really moved me. Because from being connected to you and you giving some enlightenment to the dignity that people should have, right? Um, I've learned to see folks from a different lens. I've learned to just see 
people made in the image of God no matter where I'm at. Even if I'm That's in the right. airport, the line is long and people getting on my nerves, I have to stop and be like, you know what, you made in yeah. the image of God, I ain't yeah. going to cuss you out in my brain like <laughs> I plan on doing. But I went out and what I try to do is I take my kids out every so often and we'll go hang out, we'll, we'll, we'll bring food to folks and I encourage them to have conversations. I encourage yeah. them to ask people questions because my dad is a brilliant mind. Yeah, You know, he went through some hardships and spent time unhoused but his mind is brilliant if you sit with him you're gonna learn some stuff so i'm always encouraging him like because i want them to understand i remember being a 10 year old boy and encountering a man and he gave me a toy and i was like why is he giving me something mm. i'm supposed to be giving mm. him something and that, that burned a hole mm. in my brain like oh they have something to offer me too that's right and i want my boys to to feel like my kids to feel like they're not just playing messiah out here there it's an exchange yeah so all that to say, we were outside, you know, recently, and we were, you know, serving plates. We, you know, we made some plates. We were outside serving plates. And um, one young man had to be 25 or younger. Yeah. Right? I'm outside. You know, I'm like, man, you know, you want a plate, bro? He said, man, I don't want that plate, bro. And I said, okay, it's cool. You know what I'm saying? He said, y'all ain't going to clean up this mess out here. Y'all just got out here passing out food. Y'all ain't going to clean up this mess. And I was like, hey, bro, you know. We want to do more than just pass out food and clean up. Like, we care about y'all. Yeah, y'all don't care about nobody, bro. Y'all ain't trying to... Man, I'm out here struggling, bro. Y'all don't care about what I got going on, bro. Like, man, you know what I'm saying? What I need, I need a job. And so... Now, I didn't realize, you know, uh, the hood in me started to rise. You know, I'm matching his energy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I'm saying? So I'm matching his energy. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. I'm like, hey, bro, if you need a job, like, let me talk to you. My voice getting loud. His voice getting loud. My voice. But I'm really... Like I'm concerned. I'm concerned. Yeah. I'm burdened for him in that moment. The police came and was like, hey, everything cool. I was like, oh, it got that. I didn't know it got that crazy. <laughs> but I hit you up yeah. to talk to you about that. And you said some profound things. You know. You remember what I told you? I want well, you no, to tell. I want you to what what you had said is one, like the essence of what you said is some of it is like a disbelief that people really care. Yeah. Let's and, pause there. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. A disbelief that people don't really care. Yeah. That makes me think about, too, like the ways in which Jesus was moving through the text. Some of the lines that really speak to me when the text says, and Jesus saw. Mm. And Jesus saw. Mm. But not only did he see, he, he was proximate, right? And so he was literally inserting himself in the context that people were suffering in mm. to help them with what? Their disbelief. And yo, like, you know, presence and proximity itself helps people with their disbelief. And when I was hearing you talk about the young man, I I kind of like, I, I wept on the inside because I'm like, how many people have showed up and then left? That's good. How many times... Has he felt the absence of love? How many times has he felt the absence of dignity? Right. And so yeah. one of the roles in which we have as being interconnected, right, um, being interrelated and being a part of the human family is that what I do for you, how I show up for you, I'm also showing up for myself. So when I have that type of mindset and I see somebody who is disgruntled, I understand that that disgruntlement is coming from a deeper pain. Mm. Mm. And most times we will run away when in essence we need to get closer like Jesus. Wow. Yo, you said a mouthful. Uh... And also, bro, to add to the food point, I remember we were doing like a volunteer event at the, at Love Beyond Walls, had this lady, middle age very privileged, stayed up all night making sandwiches with her kids, came to the organization, which is one of the reasons I started the Dignity Museum. And mm -hmm. I got a, a project I want you to do right quick. Okay. So she's passing out sandwiches. Guy says, yo, like, I don't want to, I don't want this because he saw ham on it. She goes off on him in front of everybody, all the volunteers. I'm like, oh, like, like you're, like call, saying, you're like, causing the scene. Like, why are you doing mad this? Mad at him. For mad not at him for... And I walked up and I, I said, hey, could you explain what's going on? He says, I can't have this because, one, I'm unhoused. I can't afford my medication and it will make me sick. Dang. She breaks down crying. She apologizes. 
tries to find out what his medication was, found out he was short, all of this. And it was just this aha and realization moment that just because you're poor and unhoused doesn't mean that you don't have a preference. Mm. And we have to remember that. Because mm. preference and the ability to choose is also affirming of one's dignity. Yeah. And just because a person is finds themselves maybe at the, the bottom of the social location ladder, yeah. right, um, does not mean that they don't have preference a preference or the ability to choose because that choice itself is a sense of agency mm. and agency suggests that we all have something to bring to the table you really rob people of their dignity yeah when you don't give them that opportunity and Thanks. i think a lot of us haven't been in that situation so we in our mind we're like well you should be happy to have anything you should take whatever yeah, yeah. like why can't you have a choice you actually well, offer a person more dignity when you say, hey, what would you prefer? There you go. Sheesh. There you go. And you know what? He did say what he preferred, and he was able to have that need met. There's a quote that I keep, two quotes. Uh, one is, you can never meet the needs of people that you've never met. Wow. I'll say that again. You can never meet the needs of people you've never met. Wow. And the other is, everyone is deserving of dignity, no matter how damaged the shell that carries it. You you just hit me with something as I'm thinking about what you said. I think what is happening under the surface is we are disciplining people for them, like you said, for them not having an address. And so we would withhold preference from them because we're looking at we're taking it upon ourselves to be their disciplinarian. Yeah. So really, we're putting ourselves in a self-righteous position when we start to serve them. You're yeah. not really serving them yeah. if you come in in self-righteous. Yeah, which is related to uh, Dr. Teresa Gowan's Social Constructions of Poverty. She says there are three narratives that drive it. How we view it is sin talk, sick talk, and system talk. And sin okay. talk is more like something's morally wrong with you. You're out of line. You're out of character. You're lazy. All those things. And you know how she defines or describes how we address it as a society? Punishment. Yeah. Sick talk is more like, oh, it's something wrong with their their mental health or like, and then we criticize and accuse people for things that we ourselves have access to that they don't. Wow. So wow. you can't have the sick talk without creating the accessibility system for someone to access the same things. That's good. That you have access to, but it's, the, the sick talk is more about like they're unwell, they're addicted, and the thing is treatment, but it's not enough treatment. Yeah, accessible treatment. Yeah, and then the system talk is like looking at uh, systems and structures that have actually contributed and concentrated poverty in certain areas. Yeah, and I can tell based upon how a person talks to me what narrative they believe about someone who is unhoused. That's good. I went through. You know, I talk about it a little bit. I don't talk about how I, I'm still processing it, but I went through a period of major depression. Mm. And during this time period, I lost my mental capabilities. Like, I don't know if people really understand what a a severe major depressive episode feels like. I think people think of depression like I'm down in the dumps. But what I experienced was literally the loss of my mental capacity. I was trapped in my brain. No matter how bad I wanted to see life as blessed or practice gratitude, I was incapable of doing it. Mm. My mental capacity said, no, everything sucks. Mm. You should die. You mm. should just kill yourself. Mm. It was a fight every day to just stay alive, bro. Mm. And then on top of that, I would drive around and I, I would be bleeding with empathy for people that I saw because I was like, oh, my God, I get to go to therapy. I get to go to a, a, a psychiatrist to get a medication. And these people don't have access to what I have. And I thought to myself, what would I do if I didn't have the access to any of these particular things? That was another mind shift for me. And access for you meant support. Support. That's support. So yeah. I, I just think, you know, it's hard to have empathy if you haven't experienced something. And I, I really, man, again, it's it's one of the reasons why I'm such an advocate of the Christian faith is because, man, the God I, I believe in 
you know, and shout out to all my Muslim friends, all my Jewish yeah, friends, all sure. my non-believer friends. But the reason why I'm a Christian is because, man, I can see the empathy from a God who would come down and be amongst us mm. and sacrifice himself to, you know, to die um, from the very people he created. Like, mm. I can rock with that because that's puts you in an empathetic place. Mm. And I just think we as humans, we would never write a narrative like that. Like, no, we're going yeah. we gonna to be the, the self-righteous climb up by our bootstraps type of people. I know you said you had an exercise you wanted me to do yeah, too. Man. So before we close, we, we do this exercise at the Dignity Museum. We have the stations set out. And one of the reasons I created the stations is to kind of orient people's perspective as they immerse themselves into the stories of others and kind of like take off their shoes of comfort to see what it's like to wear shoes that maybe of struggle, mm. of hardship, of scarcity. They come to the museum and we pass them a cardboard and we give them three prompts. We say things like, you know, if you had to beg for money for medication, what would you write on that sign? Mm. If you had to beg for money to help your child get something to eat, what would you write on that sign? If you needed to stay somewhere and it costed money, what, what would you write on that sign? And it kind of like rocks people because most people have never put themselves in a position and found the courage to ask for something that makes them feel ashamed. And so we get a lot of different responses. People respond in all types of ways. We've had people say, I can't do it or break down crying or it, it brings up some type of emotion of, around how they treated or mistreated someone who was holding a sign, right? And so we create conversation around that. But today, I want to ask you to write something on a sign that represents the humanity of a person who may be unhoused. What would mm. you write to communicate humanity over homelessness, dignity over the lack of value that we show people? It could be a word. It can be a phrase. It can be anything. But I'm going to give you a, a chance to do that, and then I want you to talk about it. What's crazy is, even as I'm doing this, oh my God, like I almost feel hypocritical because I'm privileged with a college education mm. to be able to articulate myself mm. in a way that some people probably can't. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So it's like, my dad didn't make it past eighth grade. What would his sign say? You know, mm. Mm. <laughs> compared to mine, not not saying mine is going to really pull a heartstring, but I'm saying like he only has the tools he knows. Um, man, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about it and uh, I'm, I'm like, I can articulate articulate stuff that people can't. Mm. Um, mm. Now, my handwriting may not get me very far in life. Yeah. <laughs> my handwriting. I put, uh, God says I'm valuable. Do you believe him? Help me survive the day with money. Right? Mm -hmm. Like. Why that first phrase, though? Because I think people would not see me as a valuable. Probably mm -hmm. because I'm dirty. Because I've had to. Need a shower. Need a shower. Probably because I'm... Been wearing the same things for days. Exactly. You know, little things that we say, we'll say stuff like, man, if you don't come dressed appropriately for this interview, don't hire that person. You know what I'm saying? Things along those lines are, are cultural standards that we've made. And it's like, those are, are hindrances to opportunity for a lot of people. So for me, I'm like, hey, my value has nothing to do with what I got on. Mm -hmm. My value has nothing to do with where I'm at. My value is... Beyond all, and I got to believe that my identity is not wrapped up in my current circumstance, because if that's the case, I'm only as good as whatever it is that I place my value in. Facts. So yeah. to me, God is transcending all that. And if he says I'm valuable, then my value was not achieved. It was received. So 
It's like being royalty. If I, if I'm the prince of Zamunda, treat me as such. <laughs> you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Like not be. Don't worry about what I got on. Like coming to America. It's a great movie. If you ain't seen Coming to America, go see Coming to America. The first one. The second one's yeah. kind of trash. No yeah, shade yeah. to yeah. nobody, yeah. but yeah, yeah. The, but the first one. Eddie Murphy comes from Africa, comes to New York City, and he is. He downplays himself. He lives in the hood and he doesn't want anybody to know he's royalty because he doesn't want to be. He wants to see how people will treat him. And he finds a woman who treats him with dignity uh, despite his low circumstance. And then she ends up inheriting all of the goodness. Mm. And I think that's a testament for that we can walk away with is that if you treat people with dignity, you will inherit something from that. Like you're going to inherit First of all, a sense of empathy. You're going to get the jewelry of empathy. You're going to get the jewelry of connectivity. You're going to be more like God. And then outside of that, man, you're going to grow to become a part of human flourishing. And so mm. what I love, and, and and this is what I do want you to just take a second to inform people on, you're big on human flourishing, yeah. right? You're more than just the guy who educates people on homelessness, you are the person who educates people on dignity and humanity and yeah. the flourishing of, of humanity. You created the Dignity Museum, which is in Atlanta. Yeah. And talk to us a little bit about the vision of that and what your vision is moving forward. Yeah, man. Thank you for uh, doing oh, that yeah. sign. You know, we've had thousands of people do those. And you wouldn't believe if I told you, but none of them are the same. Hmm. Which speaks to how people have taken the moment to see themselves in, in the shoes, just a brief moment of someone else. Mm. You talked about collecting the jury of empathy and dignity and all those things. And I always say, like, your kids watching, man. You know? How you treat people, other people, says a lot about what's in your heart. That's good. One of the reasons why we created the Dignity Museum was to help people get proximate to the stories that they would drive by each and every day. It's immersive. It's the first of its kind in the United States is housed in the shipping container. But man, we envision expanding this. So uh, so when people go into the Dignity Museum, what do they encounter? What do they see? And I know audio because- Audio clips. Uh, yeah. We have virtual reality. Uh, we have visuals. I mean, it's art on the wall. And a lot of the words that are on the wall actually come from people who've come through our organization. Mm -hmm. Just a testimony too, man, like when we first launched the museum, we had all these people coming through and there was a family who actually found their aunt in the museum. Like a, a her, she was one of the exhibits. She was one of the exhibits. Wow. Uh, passed away during COVID. And as, you know, an organization that wants to keep her legacy alive, they allowed her us to put her picture on the side of one of our vehicles. Wow. Because that picture has someone hugging her. And that's one of the last memories that they have of their aunt. And so these are actual stories of real people who've had the courage to survive poverty. Yeah. The courage to survive homelessness. Mm. People who have overcome it and people who haven't. Mm. All of their voices matter. And I think, you know, when we think about privilege, it's not a, just about passing the microphone. It's making sure that somebody else's voices who has been silenced is heard and seen in a way that is also valued. And so that's what we're doing at the Dignity Museum. We use it to educate, but we also use it to teach people how to show up and serve yeah. and be proximate and be present and do the work of what God is really calling us to do, man. I started using the word unhoused or experiencing homelessness not to elevate the problem that a person is suffering with above their humanity. Mm. And it alludes to like, you know, if I didn't have a truck, you wouldn't call me truckless. Right. And so when we label people mm. with these terms, we kind of limit them. And when we limit them, we ultimately discard them. And I think it's the reframing of language that orients our heart to better see people as having the image of God and deserving of dignity. Okay, so <clears throat> a lot of people, again, devil's advocate, a lot of people would say, man, I read an article where this man made 80 grand, you know, panhandling, or, you know, these folks aren't really homeless, they're just hustling. And 
you know, I kind of have my my perspective on that and my thoughts, but I'm I'm just curious, you know, everyone's always got some kind of like pushback. Like how do you navigate that? What do you how do you advise in light of these kind of pushbacks? I read an article um I actually wrote about this in my research. It's a community out in San Francisco. The average cost of a house, the average is like 1.4, 1.5 million. The city was about to build a shelter sort of proximate to this community. Do you know what the residents did? Hmm. They started a GoFundMe and raised $70,000 plus dollars to hire an attorney to stop the building of accessibility to beds. Most times people ask me like, you know, what if I, I, I fear, I, I got fear in my heart towards the unhoused community, or I, I don't know if they're really, I'm like, who was the last person that hurt you in your life? Hmm. And most times when they are really honest, it's someone who has a roof. Woo! God. John Hopkins Hospital put out a report years ago that says <sighs> most of the violent crimes that are committed are committed by people who have housing, not those who are unhoused. And so, like, when we think about these things, why can't we see the value and honor the stories of those who are telling us that they're suffering? Mm. It's called epistemic injustice. When you look at someone, you want to see them, but you don't want to hear them. We are a victim of our biases. Yes, like the thought that even will pop into my head that I'm being scammed versus what do I lose by trying to help somebody? It's crazy. But yet we go to church and we tell people to cry out to God for what? <sighs> One word, help. Help. And how does God show up? Through the hearts and service and actions of his family. What's wild to me, bro, is that we don't have to justify why we will spend $2,000 a year on a cup of coffee on a regular basis, but we got to justify why we would give $2 to someone on the side of the road who is asking for a meal. Ah, is he really real? Is this serious? Is this and if serious? even if that's not your step, if you don't want to give cash, I say keep gift cards Yeah, um, with you. Uh, local to the area where you know it's a subway close by or you know mm. it's this close by. Like, I know what it feels like because when I started an organization, I actually made myself unhoused. I lived on the streets for a little over a month, uh, ate out of trash cans, put out of shelters, you know, talked down to by, uh, you know, workers within the shelters, had people of privilege cross the street, put out of restaurants for asking for water, all of these different circumstances. Stood on the corner with one of my friends named Tony who had a terminal illness. We bagged 427 people for a dollar for what? For his medication. Whew. We got cans thrown at us. People locked their doors, said obscene things. They didn't even know that I wasn't homeless at the time. I was just walking in this so I could be proximate to this community, so I could be a, a even more effective communicator of what these things are actually like. So when a person asks for a dollar, it may be someone on the other side saying, I need help buying medication. It may be someone on the other side saying, I need to buy some hand warmers because it's cold outside. It may be someone saying, I haven't eaten in a day and I'm uh, humiliating myself. I'm humbling myself to ask you for something that you're just going to turn your head away on. And so that adds to the... Mm. The harm that is done on the inside of a person when we just look away and we don't get a chance to know them. And even if you don't give a dollar, ask them their name. Mm. Ask them how they're doing. You know, notice a person in a way where you don't look away and it ma makes them feel ashamed of their existence. Yeah. Affirm their worth with more than money. That's good. It's about presence. And if it leads to that, allow it to, you know. That's good. I love what you said your kids are watching. My daughter came home one day and she said, Daddy, we went to this place called the Dignity Museum. Oh. <laughs> for her school. Your daughter? My daughter. Oh, that's crazy. And this was when she was in uh, middle school and uh, she came home and she and it had a profound impact on her, man. And, uh, wow. And, you know, 
yeah, so I, I just say all that to say, like, the way my grandmother had an impact on me, I aim to have that kind of impact on my kids, and I'm grateful for you because you are transforming generations. You know, they say inheritance is what you leave to somebody, legacy is what you leave in them. Yeah. And you are leaving a legacy. You've left a legacy in kids who don't belong to you, mine included. Oh, wow, man. You know Appreciate what I'm saying? That, man. Um, but, man, anybody who is seeing this, like, lovebeyondwalls.org. Yep. Support, donate, become a part of what God is doing. But if you are local to Atlanta, don't just give your money. Yeah. Give your time. Show up. Show up. Yeah. Be proximate. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm using the doctor's words there. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. He, my, my man got the degrees. Yeah, I'm just, yeah. you know, I'm a conduit for all of that, man. Uh, but, bro, man, you. There's so much we didn't even touch on, and I feel like we could talk for hours, but people, y'all got to know his story. This man walked across the country, like walked across the country. This man had personally experienced homelessness, personally put his story on the line, and man, you, you've you gone through so many hardships, mm. and the world doesn't know about all of it, bro. And I, I think people don't know what you've had to deal with and what you are dealing with in order to be the voice that you are. Oh, like yeah. it, it, There's a tax there's scrutiny, there's challenges, and no one does what you're doing just like, yay, you know, without a burden. And so, yeah. man, I appreciate you wearing that and, and moving into this space. And I appreciate yeah. you, my bro. Yeah, man. And uh, to quote you, there's places I ain't been yet. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Yeah, we got to take the message out. Bro. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go to the All places, right. man. Yeah. Dr. Terrence Lester, man, yeah. uh, we appreciate you, bro. Thank you, I man. I appreciate you, bro. Yeah. yeah.